Good morning. It is always good to be among God's people. It's a wonderful thing. <clears throat> Turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you and I'm trying. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> good to see my daughter here this morning. My little yellow daughter. <laughs> All right. Um, our scripture this morning comes from the book of Malachi. And Pastor John will be there today. We will drop in on Malachi chapter 1. And we're going to read one verse. That's verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh-oh. I don't have anything with me. Hold on. Well, good morning. How's it going? Let's try this again. Uh, thank you, Brother Jim, for reading the scripture. We love to keep uh, keep folks on their toes. Um, William wasn't feeling well this morning. He was going to read. And uh, so I think John asked Jim about uh, four minutes ago, maybe, to read. So thank you for being willing. I appreciate that. Um, the book of uh, the book of Malachi is a fantastic book, and I'm very excited for our study there. Um, this morning, we're going to just introduce the book of Malachi because we're going to spend some time uh, with it. There's a little bit of a challenge at the end on how to read Malachi. Um, I did some accurate projections and forecasting around it. Um, Patrick took a first cut. He had a few errors in his math, so I corrected that. So we'll have a little bit of a challenge towards the end in terms of how to read the book of Malachi. Um, but things have been going fast since we closed Mark. I feel like kind of catching my breath, right? Like my legs are still spinning out from under me from the book of Mark. Um, and so the way that we do book introductions, um, is we, we really want to dig into kind of what's the context, what's the time frame, where are we in the world when we open up to a new book? Because uh, it's certainly true that the, the Word of God is eternal, it's living, double-edged sword, um, but it was also written to a specific audience for a specific purpose, and we have benefit from that oftentimes, and, and um, uh, sometimes it's understanding 
why it was written the way that it was. Um, Malachi, if you were to count, you would count about 55 verses. Um, and so we will be in the book of Malachi for, for 12 weeks. And um, that puts us going through the book of Malachi um, fairly quickly. I think we're, that puts us at doing somewhere around like four and a half verses uh, per week when we, when we take, the, uh, take the study on. Um, the book of Malachi comes to us, we, we have very early manuscripts. I, actually, I meant to put a picture of that in, but I didn't. Um, uh, the Qumran Caves. So the kind of story goes, depending who you ask, you know, perhaps a, a little boy was playing, uh, the community of Qumran sits above the Dead Sea. Um, and the, the story goes, that the little boy was playing out there through a rock, and there was a long pause before there was the tinking of the rock at the bottom, and it was maybe a shatter of, uh, of a clay pot. And when they entered into there, what they found was an ancient library um, that, that this Jewish sect, this Jewish community had um, of scriptures. And all of those were, uh, you'd probably be surprised at how, how much they were fought over and hidden and, and, and uh, to God's uh, glory now have been kind of preserved, very well taken care of. You can see them digitally. Um, but the book of Malachi, there's, there's one particular piece of one of those uh, fragments in the book of Malachi, 38%, um, according to a gentleman named Ari Fuller in his dissertation paper, 38% of the entirety of what we have of the book of Malachi exists on one of those, on one of those fragments. Um, in fact, it's a chapter 2, verses 10 through chapter 3, verse 24 is what shows up on one of those particular fragments. I don't think you've ever seen them, but they're very interesting looking, right? I mean, these are old documents. We're talking about things that have been written on vellum, written on leather, sometimes written on the backside, maybe of a leaf even. And so it's just amazing that we're able to put all of these, these things together. There's another scroll that, um, that was in Qumran that had uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. But we also find the book of Malachi in, in the Septuagint. And um, so I know I'm... I'm kind of throwing a lot out, right? There's a lot of 50-cent words here, meaning if you, you go out and talk about Qumran and the Septuagint, you'll sound really cool at lunch, and everyone will be interested in what you're saying, right? Um, but the Septuagint is called that because, you know, 70, 72 authors um, in, in, in really in the time of, of biblical history when the New Testament really is still being put together, still being assembled, um, Jewish people who, who spoke Greek, started saying, you know, the, the people are really starting to be Hellenized. They're starting to speak Greek, so we should take the Hebrew texts and we should write them into Greek. So, so why is that interesting? It's interesting because we now understand the way that they understood those texts in a lot of ways, right? The way that they would see what, what word meaning was because they chose a, a Greek word that maybe we know a little better than the Hebrew word. Um, we can see what they were piecing together, and we see the book of Malachi there as well. And so Malachi itself is, is a fascinating book. It's what's referred to as a minor prophet. Um, and, and we have, as a, as a church previously, uh, the church formerly known as Transcend, we studied um, one, of the, one of the minor prophet books. And so um, those are Hosea, Joel, Amos, which sadly was almost my name, Amos, um, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are the minor prophets. And they're called minor prophets, not because they're minor in importance, for no other reason than they're small. 
They're just small. Um, powerful text still. God is communicating incredible truth through the minor prophets. Uh, on occasion, John Nicholas, Pastor John Nicholas, will send a meme. Um, and uh, I, one time there was, there was one that came across, and um, it, it said something to the effect of um, people can, can kick up the water and make it muddy so that it seems deep. And so it's, it's easy to be confusing with a lot of words. It's hard to be sharp with a few. And so I think the minor prophets are actually fascinating because they're so short. They have to draw a lot of conclusions, make a lot of points, and use very few words. And so Malachi is, is like that. It's minor, but powerful. So what Malachi is going to do is, is give us a bit of perspective on our New Testament. As we study this book, it'll give us interesting perspective on the New Testament. Um, and we say that the, the New Testament gives light to the shadows in the Old Testament. So some of the things that they couldn't know yet because Jesus hadn't been revealed. He hadn't satisfied every jot and every tittle. So much of what's in uh, the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Christ. Um, and so we'll, we'll slow down and look at those points as we go through the book of Malachi, and we'll, we'll find those things on purpose. Um, so much of Malachi's focus was around the people kind of refocusing on what was important. And I say refocus, maybe it's, maybe it's focused for the first time on what was important. You know, almost like you, you, you wake up in the morning, if you're like me, I wake up in the morning, and I, generally I go stand on my deck, because sometimes there's this deer that stands off to the side, and I think it looks like it would taste good, and so I go look at it. And um, the other morning I was standing out there, and I just realized, man, I can't hardly see any of the, the details in this, this low spot where, where the deer generally comes out. And as the day went on, a little later I came out, and I, was, I could see it you know, a little better, even without my glasses. And so that's that, that refocusing, that sharpening of the vision is what Malachi helps us to do. As New Testament Christians, going back and understanding Malachi's perspective, understanding what God was saying through Malachi, is helpful to us with the knowledge that we have as believers today. And so uh, the left is as important as the right. The 66 books are what God intended to communicate. And so we want to look at all of them. Malachi helps us that when we look at the concept of sin... Malachi helps us understand that sin isn't just a bad word, right? Um, sin doesn't mean you watched Hot Tub Time Machine. Um, sin doesn't mean you hit your finger with a hammer and you said a naughty word. Sin is against the character and the nature of God, some act that comes out of you because of your misalignment with God, because of your fallenness, because of your existence as part of this creation. Um, and so Malachi helps us see what sin is. And in a world, in the world generally, right, whether it was in Malachi's day, whether it's in our day, a drift away from Scripture and just a starting to interpret the world around you for yourself always goes the same place, far from God. Any church, Christian religious organization, church-based organization that you see that stops focusing on the Word will drift from God. Because you're away from your source. This is all that we have, right? This is all that we need to know, truthfully, for being to, to satisfy God, to know Him, to love Him, for Christ to be your Savior. You need nothing more than this. Nothing more. And stepping away from that actually makes you further from God. So if you've decided, I, you know, I want to, I really want to just, I want to get into the world, 
so that they'll know who God is. And, and you're not just talking about scriptures with people, you're trying to reason with people. You're reasoning with foolishness. And you will drift from God. It will happen. It happens over and over again. You see it a lot of times too, like especially now that the world is so well connected. You see drift in people who are like, wow, that person was so great. Right? They seem to really kind of have a, a really strong theology. And then they went into the world and they just tried to, tried to prove it on their own. I remember Ray Comfort one time took on a, uh, um, if, I don't know if you know Ray Comfort, but he's you know, somewhere between an evangelist and, and an apologist. Um, and so he one time said, you know, I, I, I can prove the existence of God without my Bible. And we're thinking, man, why would you want to, though? Like, and it was a train wreck of an event for him, um, if, you, if you remember that. I think what he did was he pointed to a, a painting. I mean, I think it's a great illustration. I use it a lot. But he pointed to a painting, and he said, um, how can this painting come to have been without a painter? How much more the world and everything in it? It's a good example but Scripture is safer. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This section that I just read from Malachi is quoted by every single one of the Gospels, every single one of the New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quoted from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Every single one of the Gospels had that same verse that they pointed to when they looked at the coming of Christ, when they talked about John the Baptist, the forerunner, when they talk about Elisha, when, they, when you look back and you think about the transfiguration on the mount, and Jesus talking about Elisha having come, but people didn't accept him. It all hinges back to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And so why is that important to see that, these, that the New Testament is drawing from this book? It helps us have support to know that that is, in fact, Scripture. Scripture, scripture quotes from Scripture and clarifies itself, especially when the New Testament is quoting the Old. We get more light on that passage when we understand it in the light of Jesus' coming, and satisfying prophecy. You also see Malachi quoted in several other books. The book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, James, 1 Peter, Revelation, all quote from the book of Malachi. It's God's word. And what this book does then of Malachi is it, it shows a, a juxtaposition between human will and human motives, especially when they begin to drift away from God, and God's character, nature, and his stance on those things. Um, I think this is a timely book for us in our day. There's a lot of drift in the world around us, a lot of cultural drift, a lot of arguing about what's true, what's real, what's up, and what's down, and doing so starting from a, a position in creation, so a creature in creation arguing for what truth might be. But we're finite, right? God is infinite. We're finite. We only know what we know. We know the way that we've experienced the world. We know what we've touched and seen and smelled, and it's perhaps different than the people in Europe. And so if we're going to have a true perspective on eternal truths, we have to have an outside perspective from ourselves. We can't, for ourselves, define truth the way that God does. And so having this book of Malachi that sets us 
up and our motives up before a holy and righteous God allows us to see the, the delta, allows us to see the gap, it allows us to see the difference. And that's important. It's contrast, right? You need contrast. Um, if I was to take a, a white sheet of paper and then take a white marker and write on it, you would say, you're not making any sense. I can't see that. That's because there's no, no contrast. It doesn't stand out from the rest. And so in order to stand out, in order to see the truth, we have to have that contrast. And so the scriptures are so helpful because if you read them, it looks like an episode of Jerry Springer. And I can some faces in here I can tell don't know what Jerry Springer is. That's okay. It was insanity on steroids, right? Like the craziest situation you could ever imagine times 10. And they were going to fight. And the bodyguard dude was going to come out. And he was going to kind of break it up, right? You read the scriptures, you see the craziest things happening in people's lives. And to me, that's helpful because it's true. It's reflective of the way people actually are. You see some crazy stuff in this word because there's some crazy people in the world. We're nuts. Creatures are nuts. Look at what happens around us, right? Some of the things that happen around us, you, you step back and you go, that's crazy. Isn't there like, there's a, there's a woman right now, I forget her name, like in her fiance, they went to go somewhere and she disappears. And then now the, the, the dad is mad because the fiance is in hiding somewhere, right? That's kind of stuff happens all the time. And I'm telling you, out of someone who watches a lot of true crime, that dude did it. It's always that dude. And so the scriptures, the book of Malachi, lets us see projected on someone else things that we might find in ourselves if we'll take the time. And that's the hard part. Um, I had a pastor one time that used to say, read your own mail. You know what I mean? Like the letter comes and it's to the neighbor. We should want to approach the scriptures and know, what does this reveal about me? It's so easy to think, oh, well, I'm... I'm a believer, I'm found in Christ, I'm, I'm cool, I'm good, so this must be about the world. I'm reading the scriptures, it must be about Republicans, they're idiots. I'm reading the scriptures, it must be about Democrats, they're idiots. And it misses us completely. We allow ourselves to escape. The word is supposed to kind of nail us sometimes, squarely. It tells us who we truthfully are. If I was to pick up the scriptures and read the books, and it was all about how great everybody was, I would just say, you know what? That's not true. Because <laughs> I'm experiencing something totally different. Even in churches, right? You get infighting in churches. Um, you know, should we have pews? Should we have chairs? What color should the wall be? Where should there be a sign? All of these kinds of things. And people will get toothy over it. The book of Psalms in chapter... 119 verses 18 and 19 says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. And he hasn't. Hasn't hidden his commandments from us. He has given us his law. He has given us his word. The question is, will we desire it? Will we want it? Will we look to receive it? Will we want to be instructed by it? Do we approach it saying, God, what do you have for me in this? It's all, all of it is available to you, God. All of it's exposed to you, God. I don't want to hide anything uh, from you. That's what we see in the garden. That's our first reaction. Adam and Eve sin. 
God comes into the garden, walking in the cool of the day, and he says, Adam, where are you? Why? It's not that Adam was a great hider, or he had a secret hiding spot, when kid, like when kids play. Um, kids play hide-and-go-seek, right? Usually, if you stop and listen, you can hear the panting. They're trying not to pant, right, because they just sprinted to that place. God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? So that Adam would be introspective, so that Adam would think about what, what's just happened. Why, why did somebody tell me, something tell me, some creature tell me? God's holding something back from you. If you do this thing that he did say for you not to do, it's really that you're just not understanding him right. It's really that his word, what God said, holds back something from you that's actually really good for you. And so he said, well, all right. I mean, look at it. Yeah, it is food. So we step away from the word. We get into logic. Oh, yeah, look, it's, it's food. If I eat it, nothing bad's going to happen. Even though God said something bad would happen, nothing bad's going to happen. And so that's where sin enters the world, not trusting God at his word, questioning that God has some hidden motive from you. So we should come to the book of Malachi that really cuts to the core of a people who are skeptical about religion and people whose heart issues are keeping them far from God. I mean, does anything sound more like our day today than that? Skeptical about religion, skeptical about, well, what does the word actually say? And heart issues that are just keeping us separated from God. There's such a high tension in the world today. I think it's like... Um, you know, a joke before, we used to have a computer that always had tons of tabs open on it. And it was in an office, which was next to the bedroom. And it never got turned off. It must have had a hundred and something tabs on in the browser. It was always on. And it just had this fan that would just scream at, at, at like, this tone of violence. And you kind of, you, you, it just kind of fades into what's normal, right? Like, you become nose blind. You become ear deaf. I don't know how you go with that. But one day it turned off. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was really loud, always. That's kind of how the world is. Right? We're so used to it. We're so on edge. We're so ready for someone to try to fight with us or argue with us. Um, like I, I got into my car this morning and I was trying to, my cup holders are horrible. They don't actually fit coffee cups, which is weird. And so I'm trying to balance. I have this way of balancing it. You know, if I take the first few sips, so I drive out of my neighborhood holding on to it the whole way because our road does this, right? So I drive out like this, and I try to get a few sips in so that I can get the balance. I'm doing all that, and I start to make a turn. You have to take a left turn out of my neighborhood, and people come up a blind hill pretty quickly. So I start to come out, and somebody's coming pretty quick around that corner, and he looks at me, he's so mad. He's like, and I'm like, yeah, dude, because you've never pulled out in front of someone. I get it. It's just, that's that tension. It's just buzzing constantly, and we're not even aware of it. It's just background noise. That's why we're dying of heart disease and cancers. Our bodies are constantly boiling. And so a, a book like this, a book that puts a people who are skeptical about religion, a book that, that, that takes people whose heart issues are keeping them far from God, if we'll take that on and we'll, we'll be introspective, we'll say, God, is this in me? Is it, am, am I doing this in some ways? We could be more helpful because of that. And by helpful, I mean in our relationship with God. There could be other benefits. Maybe your body will get more help. I don't know. I'm trying to wear this thing out. I'm doing a really good job, too, let me tell you. Um, 
But I think we get more healthful in our relationship with God when we look for our own stuff, right? Find your warts and your bunions, like John Nicholas, bunion feet. It's his college nickname. Got to look for that stuff. We can't just hide and pretend like it's not there because it's still there. It's like kids that play hide and seek by covering your eyes and they think because you can't see them, they can't see you. If we know who our God is, we have a sovereign creator of the universe who is all-knowing and all-present, knows you, knew you before you were born, knows every hair on your head. And the crazy part is, still wants you with him. And that's the thing not to miss about Malachi. This is a resistant people, skeptical about religion, pretending to serve God, but just for their own benefit. And he comes to them. Right? Don't miss that. God comes to them. God sends them a messenger. God spends time on this. It's interesting. The people in the book of Malachi, we see that they were offering sacrifices to God, but they weren't truly doing so. It was the motions, going through the motions. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Malachi chapter 1, verses 8 and 13 shows that. We see the, the priests were not faithful to the ministry and to the word in Malachi 2 and 8. And I would argue that's where the problems start. That's where the problem starts. And for us, in our day, it's when we become a church-based organization. When we back off from the word and we back up to the world and say, let's just, let's, maybe if we solve the world's problems, they'll want to hang out with us and they'll want to hear about our God and, and what our God says is sin and what our God says is right relation. And so we really start working with the world. We step away from the word and we become impotent. We become of no effect whatsoever because we don't have any word. We're hollow. Um, I remember for the first time going to a church who taught slowly through the scriptures. And when I first started going, I would stand there and I would endure the singing because I was not going to chant these chants that I don't believe. And then I started hearing the word and I started seeing how it was true in the world around me. And I started seeing that it tells one story. Because um, I had been to a church that would, you know, maybe someone would read a passage and then they would tell a funny story. And then they would do some kind of a drama. And, um, and then they would like do, you know, feed you lunch and then you'd make sandwiches for people downtown. There's no word in it and there's no life in it. None. But to hear the word and realize, oh my gosh, this is, this is from God. This is from the Creator. This is incredible. This is transforming. It's transformative. It's, it's, it's in my mind. It's giving me a clearer view, a right understanding of everything that's happening. That's the transforming word that goes forward. It goes out, and it doesn't return void. It always accomplishes God's task for it. Is that to harden your heart? God hardened Pharaoh's heart by presenting opportunities for Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh follow, following exactly what he wanted to do and choosing against God. And in doing so, it hardened his heart. It's just like the sun can cause ice. It's not that the sun actively radiates on the water and turns it into ice. It's when there's the shadow. Something blocks that sun. 
And so the lack of the sun's presence causes the ice to form. This is Pharaoh's heart, and it could be our heart too. You know, we, could, we can block out God, but if he's chosen you, I'm going to tell you what, I know you think you're really strong. And, and because I, I know every single one of you, for the most part, you think you're bullheaded and stubborn, you are not bullheaded and stubborn enough for what I believe it was Spurgeon called the hound of heaven. If God is after you, you better give it up. Just give up. Like if you did a pro-con list, it'd be kind of comical, right? Let's see, should I be a believer in the truth and God's Messiah? It'd be an interesting list. They weren't faithful in marriage, Malachi 2.14. Isn't that interesting? It just gives the character of the type of people that they were. They kept, kept back their tithes, see in Malachi 3, all reflective of heart issues. And so God is coming for this hard-hearted, resistant, unfaithful people, just like he is today. I always hear people say, oh man, everything is so crazy. Yeah, but everything's always been crazy because the world is full of sinners who don't know God. And it's in a creation that groans. It's always been crazy. You think it's just crazy now? They used to burn kids to Molech. Like, if you read the Bible, it was pretty crazy. And so this book of Malachi lets us see ourselves in contrast to God. It lets us see ourselves more clearly if we'll look. If we'll look. And not play, I can't see you, you can't see me with God. The name Malachi itself is, is a matter of some debate. It actually reads, my messenger is the name. It could be a title. It could be a pseudonym. We don't exactly know who Malachi is. We don't have another place. A lot of times in, in the scriptures, we'll see, you know, uh, the, Ezra the priest mentioned somewhere else. We'll see other people mentioned in a long genealogy, right? Like, like if you do a Bible in a year chronological plan, I'm talking like those lists that come up in like February. You know what I mean? Who begat who begat who begat who? But the name itself means my messenger. It actually comes up in the uh, heavily quoted. I said every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote and quoted Malachi 3 and verse 1. So we'll talk again about my messenger and who that is and what that means on November 14th. I found guessing. There's sometimes when you have a, a clue, a context clue in the passage about when it might have been dated, right? Maybe it mentions uh, some, some people or some leader. Maybe it mentions some location, a building that was destroyed. We don't really have that in Malachi. So we say 5th century, probably. Um, interestingly, when we look at our, our Bible, we get to the end of the Old Testament, it's Malachi. Um, if, you were, if you were Jewish, if you had a Hebrew Bible, that would fall right in the middle, right, where the where the where the minor prophets fall there in, in the middle of, of their scripture. Why for us do we put that at the end, before the intertestamental period of, of silence? This book about these hard-hearted people that needed to do something else, and, and with the promise of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, it just cast hope into the future for Christ's coming. The, uh, the, the, the writing of, of the book of Malachi is, is fairly interesting, right? It, it, it kind of comes across as this interesting conversation. Um, where, where people by Malachi are characterized and, and asked a rhetorical question. You know what I say about rhetorical questions? What would the world be like without them? 
And so Malachi asks lots of rhetorical questions, and God answers. And it's interesting because sometimes it sounds like it's Malachi is talking, and then it ends with, says the Lord. This is revelation from God to these people. Um, there could be books chronologically that, when you look at dates, um, were written after Malachi, but this is the last time that God speaks through a prophet. So chronologically, in terms of that, chronologically, in terms of God speaking to people, this is the last thing that he speaks through a prophet. And so that's why we have it ordered the way that we do. It's almost like, and, and uh, Jim read earlier from Malachi 1.10, it's, it's, it's almost like Malachi characterizes people and then the Lord retorts. So if we look back to that, Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So there's this kind of an assuming dialogue going on that the people have their their door open to anything, and they'll uselessly pretend to be worshiping God. But it's not really about God, it's about them. Uh, Maybe going to church is really about having a network of references that you can sell to or build product to. Maybe it's more like Amway than it is about Christ's kingdom. And that's what Malachi cuts to the core of. And again, maybe that's you, maybe that's been you, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's an opportunity to be introspective. The scriptures talk to all of us. And so that type of worship from these people isn't what God wanted. And so this isn't a sentencing, though, right? It's not like God comes in and says, you've messed this up, and I'm done with you. He comes in and he tells them so that they can change, so that they can be better, so that they can approach him rightly, so that they can really know him, so that they can benefit from being found in him. And guess what? The same thing is true for us. He comes to us. He sent Christ, his son, who in the end said, it is finished. What was finished? Christian life? No, clearly we're still here. What was finished was the continual atonement for sin. It was done on Christ. And when we approach him and we become found in him through what we would call salvation, then we're covered by his righteousness. Luther called it a snow-covered dunghill, is what he would say we became. And so then, in addition to being a sinner saved by the grace of God, we also come under Jesus' lordship. And so now we live differently in the world around us. Now we can be introspective because we're covered in Christ. And so everything else is gain. Die to die is gain. To live and be found in Christ is gain. So all we have is gain. There's no risk. So we should want to become transformed more and more into Jesus' image over time, sanctified. We should want to look more and more like Jesus. And we do that through the Word. The more time that we put in the Word, it starts to flow through our minds like our thoughts. We start to say statements that we realize are out of Scripture. We start to think of scenarios and events and decisions through a scriptural lens that's helpful because we're just creatures. We don't know. We only know what we can see from crawling around in the dust. 
But there's a bigger picture, bigger view. And the Word gives that to us. It's almost unfair, really. A bit of an unfair advantage, if you will. Malachi 2.7 said, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so what's being said? That wasn't happening. That hadn't happened. That didn't happen. And so the result of the messenger of God not guarding knowledge, you know, when, when, when people ask, well, why are, you, why are you so finicky about the way that we use words? Why are you so finicky about the way that we talk about how the order of salvation, all of these different things? Because we're supposed to guard knowledge. We're supposed to accurately explain the hope and faith that lies within us to a world around us who needs to know it accurately. Because the world around us is constantly trying to throw little bits of, little bits of untruth, little bits of lie in. And in fact, if you read the warnings of the scriptures, it says that these kinds of things are going to come from within your own number. So we have to guard the truth very actively. Malachi 2.17, flowing after 2.7, says... You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Nobody speaks like that, right? You've never had someone say, where is the God of justice? Right? Nobody talks like that. You know what people say when there's a murder or a crime against a child? They say, if God was fair, that wouldn't have happened. Why do they say that? Because they don't rightly understand God. Why don't they rightly understand God? Because priests and pastors and others have not faithfully carried the word so that they would know it. Someone who knows God and knows God's character would not ask that. We may struggle with it. We may come alongside when they're saying, man, this is the hardest thing. I know this is tough. But somehow, God allowed it to occur. Because there's nothing. We don't excuse God away. There's nothing that happens outside of God's control. Not a single thing. In fact, people try to write God's, people try to write God's guilt away for the bad things that happen. That is a worse God. Oh, well, he was out of control. Well, why are you praying to a God who can't control outcomes? Why would you, why would you revere a God who throws a world of chaos together and just lets it rage out of control and people get messed up and mangled in it? And that's not what God says for himself. He says he's in control of everything. You've read Romans 8, 28. Hopefully you've read Romans 8, 28 through 29. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto those people who take what is true and confuse it and kick the dirt around so the water gets muddy so it's harder to see through. Woe unto those kinds of people. And so God calls for a refocusing on truth. He's calling for a, a refocusing on truth for a people who don't understand His mercy. But you say, how have we 
wearied God by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. You ever see that in the world around you? Something happens, and people say, that was good, that was a good thing that they did, you know? And, and my, Brianna and I joke all the time and say, none does good, but my Father in heaven, right? That was Jesus' response. Good teacher. None is good, my Father in heaven. Increasingly, I'm really starting to feel that pretty deeply. When we just see it all the time, people saying, oh, somebody did a thing and it was really good. And you're like, no, that wasn't. It wasn't good. There's a lot of hurt going on in the world. We're, we're spinning up and hurting each other in lots of different ways, lots of different venues, and sometimes we're even calling it a good thing. And so we've got to be introspective. Again, this is not about deflecting responsibility for ourselves. If you find no fault in yourself, that itself may be a problem. That may be pride. You may not be accurately looking at yourself. And remember, it's not that you have to hide the truth of your guilt away. You're not obscuring it from God. He asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Hey, look at yourself, dude. Look at what's going on around you. Here's how life is going to be different now, Adam. But even though there was no death before, I'm going to give you clothing made from an animal. Death now exists in the world. I'm going to give you clothing. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to tell you some things so that you'll be safe. And then I want you to create people and I want you to multiply on the earth. And then he continues pouring grace upon grace on us. As within a generation... We find out what brothers do to one another. The ground cries out in the blood of your brother. So from the beginning, it's been crazy because of us. It'd be cool if it was God, you know? I was joking with uh, someone the other day about sports. It's like, they're like, oh, you think there's going to be sports and stuff in heaven? I'm like, well, what do you think's going to happen, man? Like, we're just going to sit around fat in a diaper and play a harp? Sounds boring. You mean new creation and new earth. I think we play sports. I think we play games and everybody wins. I don't know how that works. It's awesome. I can't wait to find out. You know, I will crush you in spades in heaven. Forget it. So we need to be introspective as we study this book. This is just an introduction to the book. We didn't dive in really to the text at all. This is a wedding of our appetite so that we'll be reading it throughout the week. A um, couple of points, two, two passages, and I want you to just kind of tuck these in the back of your mind this week and as we continue with this study. Because again, this is calling for a refocusing, right? For us to look freshly again, or for the first time. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Calls us to, to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Introspection. Thinking about yourself. Looking about fruit in your life. This is not to terrify you. This is to encourage you to think about yourself in Christ. This is awesome. This is invitation. If you're like, oh, I don't don't know if I'm found in Christ. Hey, that's okay. You can now be found in Christ. Like if you see, here's how salvation works. The most amazing thing. When you see in a moment of clarity, oh my gosh, I'm different than the eternal creator God, which makes so much sense. He's perfect and he's holy and I'm just a person and I have to, I have to like bathe myself every day so I don't stink. 
have to put things on myself. I have to wash my clothes. I'm so gross that we have to do all of these things. There's whole aisles in the store full of products to help me because I'm rotting all the time. Examine yourselves. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? The world around you is going to lie and say everything you believe is silly. It's okay. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, really, social pressure is going to make you say things you don't believe. You're going to feel so socially awkward that you won't say, uh, well, I believe that everything was created. I mean, I say that with all confidence in the world. Like, I'm literally looking at it. It didn't just show up. This doesn't happen just because time passed. We would never accept that with anything else, but we're supposed to accept it for all of the created order. I'm supposed to accept that it's a part of random chaos. I'm sorry, I don't feel like I need to accommodate your thinking because of social awkwardness. In fact, we're telling the truth I think that you believing that is actually really silly. And the scripture starts talking about exactly how the created order occurred by assuming God. In the beginning, God. Didn't even put up a painting and ask who painted it. Just stood on its own merit. So here's the deal with this book. It has 55 verses. 55 verses. Very attainable book. Four chapters except for the Hebrew Bible, it's three. But we have four. 1,781 words. I counted. No, I didn't. I looked it up. But John and I read it uh, one morning. We meet here on Fridays at 7, study through various things. We read the whole book of Malachi, had a whole conversation about it. It's a very attainable book. You can do it. If the, uh, if the average American reads between 200 and 300 words, we'll take the 200-word side. It's going to take you 8.9 minutes to read this book. I think you can do that every day. I hope. I mean, I looked up all kinds of recipes that you can do in a microwave for under 10 minutes. There's a lot. Okay? So we could survive 8.9 minutes of reading daily from the Holy Word of God. Now, if you did that, in 12 weeks, you would have read some 700 minutes. 746.2, if you run the decimal out and round. Or 747.6. Just think about, if you do that, that short investment of time, 8.9 minutes a day, will transform your mind. That's what it's designed to do. It'll help you refocus. It will give you better perspective on God. It will give you opportunity to look into yourself and be introspective in 8.9 minutes. And at the end, you will have spent 12 hours reading the Word of God. 
Isn't that, that's awesome. And that's cool. 8.9 minutes, if you do it through our whole study, you'll have spent 12 hours reading in the Word of God. And I bet, I bet, you'll start to hide it away in your heart, and that will result in sinning against God less because that Word is hidden away in your heart. And you may even find yourself responding to people and talking to people and thinking in terms of the words that you're reading. That's because our minds become transformed and renewed through that word that doesn't return void. That's the challenge. That's it. 8.9 minutes. You can do it. And when you don't, it's all right. Just do it the next day. It's cool. Don't beat yourself up. God loves you. Remember, he came to these messed up people. Gave them hard news but he was right there, loving him through it. Let's pray. God, you're great. You're great, and those are enough words. We love you. We thank you that you've not left us to grope around in the dark to find truth, but God, that you've come to us in your word, and you've told us who we are. You've told us how we can find your son, and he paved a way for us to be forgiven for the sin that we just naturally create against you. And so, God, we're thankful for that truth. Um, God, we thank you that you've given us a community of believers that we get to live within, that we get to work together with, that we get to work through our issues when we have them, and that we get to glorify you, not by hiding our issues, that we get to glorify you, that we deal with those things biblically. We deal with those things together, and we come out through it together in the end even better. So God, thank you for the church that you've given us, Jesus' bride. Thank you for your spirit that lives within us. God, if there's anyone who doesn't know you this morning, I pray that they would see themselves against your holiness and realize that they need you to bridge that gap. And that they would realize that your son Jesus is precious and desires that they become saved in him. And that simply by seeing that difference, seeing Jesus as the Messiah, the promise, Lamb, for forgiveness of sin, turning to trusting Him now for everything. And that's weird music. God, we pray that we pray that you would reach someone even today. And so, God, we we thank you that you've given us this fellowship. And, and we pray now, even as we as we start to add a couple of deacons to the, the body, deacons that you've called for in your word, as we'll hear in a moment. Um, God, That we, we thank you that you allow us to function like this. And so God, we, we, we love you, we praise you, we so look forward to 8.9 minutes a day and 12 hours after 12 weeks of reading in your word. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor John's going to come up and then, um, uh, do you guys have Mason or see in the back? He's in the back. You, you.